Amen. Let's recap just for a moment because here at Calvary 316, we teach expositionally. That's a fancy word for saying we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a book, which means that whatever we are getting to this morning isn't something that I just kind of conjured up, felt like some of you needed to hear it, but the Lord has kind of ordained that this is where we are. So if you have a problem with that, you can take it up with him and not me. Now, one of the downsides to working your way through a book of the Bible, especially a book like the book of Acts, is that if you're working your way through a historical narrative, it's kind of a balancing act because we're smack dab in the middle of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. And if you weren't with us over the last couple weeks, you've kind of missed the lead into where we're diving into this morning. So on one aspect, we have to recap a little bit. On the other aspect, we're not going to rehash all of last week's Bible study. You can go check that out on your own. But just to kind of get you in the flow, in case you weren't with us over the last couple weeks, Paul and Barnabas, they set out, they're sent out from Antioch in Syria. They make their way to the island of Cyprus, cross the island to Paphos. It's there they encounter this sorcerer who tries to, to withstand them. Paul, knowing what it's like to withstand the spread of the gospel, does what Jesus did to him, struck him with blindness. Pretty cool spiritual gift. However, I was talking to Larry about that last Sunday, thinking how cool of a spiritual gift would that be? You know, to be able to strike someone resisting the gospel with blindness. And Larry pointed out, he goes, you know, I think that that's a spiritual gift that you can only have if you've been struck with blindness before, because that was the apostle Paul. So if you're like me and you're like, I'd really like that gift. No, the prerequisite is you have to be struck with blindness. So that kind of scratches it off my list. As a result, God does a work in Elimaeus' life, does a work in Sergius Paulus' life, the proconsul there. The gospel goes forth. A very cool work begins. They leave Paphos. They work their way to what we know as modern-day Turkey. They port. John Mark leaves. They work their way north to another Antioch. Antioch in Pisidia, we have a map just to kind of show you where this is. Geographically, this is in the Roman times, an area known as Galatia. So when Paul would later write to the Galatians, he's writing to all of the churches that he starts in this neck of the woods. Modern day Turkey, there's your geography. He's in the town. And as we're told, he was his custom, Paul, Barnabas, they go into the local synagogue. According to Jewish tradition, post-Babylonian exile time, for a Jew living outside of the land of Israel, if there were 10 or more Jews residing in that city, there was kind of mandated for there to be a synagogue, which is a fancy Jewish word for a gathering place. So 10 or more Jewish males, there would be a synagogue in the town. It would provide them a place to gather on the Sabbath, a place to gather, to study the Torah, to spend time in prayer, to worship throughout the week. It would double as a sort of community center. So in Antioch, they go into the synagogue. It's a great place for Paul and Barnabas to start because there's Jewish people obviously present and the Jews had a particular worldview that made it very conducive to the gospel, presenting Jesus as their Messiah. But in addition, there were Gentiles or Gentile proselytes, Gentiles who had kind of found themselves dissatisfied with paganism, with Greek mythology, with the Roman gods, who were kind of seeking for something real, something honest. If they had any inclination towards the true God of Israel, they would also have kind of joined partnered in, started attending the synagogue. There was a special place for these Gentile proselytes or what scripture calls God-fearers. 
Earlier in the book of Acts, we were introduced to one of these individuals, a man by the name of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, had longings for the true God of Israel, had been very benevolent to the synagogue. It kind of set the stage. So Paul, Barnabas, they go to the synagogue in Antioch. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's first sermon. You know, we've been discussing kind of how ideas spread. Because it's, it's fascinating to look at the spread of the gospel from a historical angle. For the first 20 years of Christianity, the message of the gospel, the way, had remained isolated to being, well, a regional movement. Mainly Jewish believers pinpointed there in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that general geographical region. First 20 years, Jesus said, take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But 20 years, it hadn't gone to the ends of the earth. It's still very much a regional thing. And yet, over the next 20 years, it moves from being a, a regional movement to a global phenomenon, to the point that the gospel even reaches the household of Caesar Nero. And we've been looking at how this spread happened so rapidly that within the first two, three hundred years, almost half the Roman Empire ends up converting to Christianity. We noticed in, in Paul's first sermon a key component to what made the gospel spread like a pandemic. Not only were there carriers taking it into uncharted areas, Paul and Barnabas, that specific mission, but the message that they were carrying itself was so sticky. It was so relevant. It not only appealed to the Jew, but it also appealed to the Gentile. And that message was the grace of Jesus. The grace of God. That salvation is not through work. Salvation is not through my abilities or my efforts or my goodwill or good standing before God, but salvation's a gift. It's freely given simply to be received. I don't have to earn it and I'll never deserve it but I'm to receive it. And this resonated to the point that there were Jewish converts here after the sermon in Antioch, but there were also a lot of Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers, we're told, beg Paul and Barnabas to stay in Antioch. So they do. They stay in Antioch for a week. They implore them to come back to the synagogue to teach the same sermon again. And in the course of this week, we're told, verse 44 of Acts 13, that on the next Sabbath, Almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Now these two verses can be summed up with three phrases. How glorious, really, think about that. That almost the whole city came to hear the word of God. You want to talk about a Bible study that resonates, a Bible study that God used in a powerful way. But why did this message spread? It was grace. It wasn't law. It was grace. And it spread. And these Gentiles start passing the word. The next Sabbath, everyone's there. It's packed out. But sadly, as glorious as this was, we're also told that Jews, the Jews, were filled with envy. So... They contradicted, blasphemed, 
and oppose the things that were spoken by Paul. This word blasphemy in the Greek, it means to be evil spoken of, to speak reproachfully. Here's Paul doing nothing but obeying God, doing nothing but preaching grace to the people. A message that yielded a tremendous result, a revival unlike Antioch had ever seen before or this local synagogue had ever seen before. And what is he met with? A group of envious Jews, jealous Jews, who then go out and are actively trying to smear Paul's integrity. They're speaking blasphemy against Paul. We're also told that in their blasphemy, they contradicted Paul. This word contradicted in the Greek, it's anti-lego, lego. It, it literally means to speak against those things which were spoken. So here they are ripping Paul's character and they're spreading falsehoods. They're directly speaking against the things that he was speaking. So sad. Well, we're told that Paul and Barnabas, in the face of this smear campaign, they grew bold. And they said to them, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, and now Paul will quote from Isaiah 49 verse 6, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what Paul is saying to these Jews is you are so hard-headed and you are so stubborn and you are so resistant to what God is doing. I hope you understand that it's your job to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what Isaiah said. That's what God said through Isaiah, that it's your job, local synagogue leaders, to be reaching the Gentiles. Sadly, we show up, you haven't been doing it. Secondly, when the Gentiles are reached, they're flooding in, the whole town comes out. Instead of being like, right on, we're fulfilling our mission, this is what God told us to do, you're resisting it. You're still resisting it. You're so stubborn. Now look at Paul's indictment. He said to them, you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Let's, let's unpack this phrase for a second, the you. Who is Paul speaking to directly? Obviously in context, he's addressing this group of unbelieving Jews that are there present in this synagogue. Then he says, you reject. In the Greek, this word reject means to thrust away, to push away. So what was it? that these Jews were thrusting away or pushing away or rejecting? Well, they were rejecting Jesus. And the salvation his death was designed to afford. Going back to Paul's sermon, Paul declared that it's through this man, speaking of Jesus, that there are two awesome results, forgiveness of sins and justification of all things. And it's that that they were rejecting. These unbelieving Jews rejecting what Jesus had come to provide. It wasn't that they were rejecting Paul or rejecting Barnabas or rejecting the Gentiles. They were rejecting the message of Jesus. And as a result, thereby, what happened? Because of their rejection, they judged themselves. This word judged, it means to pronounce a judgment. 
And who's pronouncing the judgment? Is it God pronouncing the judgment? No, it's you reject and judge yourselves. You are pronouncing a judgment upon yourselves. So look at it. You see, as a result of their rejection of Jesus, what had they judged concerning themselves? What punishment or consequence had they levied against themselves because of their rejection of Jesus? He says that you judged or deemed yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Now, you know, we talk a lot about how Jesus came to provide us life today, to change us from the inside out in the moment that the work of the gospel is a work for today. You know, that sometimes, you know, we overplay the I got the golden ticket to heaven concept, which is great and glorious. And well, Paul references it because I don't know if you're aware, that's a big deal. Like, I'm kind of glad that in Jesus, there's heaven and eternity, that there's everlasting life for me over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, in the app, we've listed several sections of scripture that you can refer to on your own where Jesus refers to his gift as being everlasting life. But don't miss the profound point that Paul's making here. You, unbelieving Jews, you're rejecting the message of Jesus, you're thrusting it away from yourselves. And by doing that, you're judging yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. You know, it's fascinating. But you know, God doesn't send a person to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. As a matter of fact, what God does is that he simply honors the decision that a man or woman has already made. You see, in this instance, these Jewish believers, they were headed to hell, unworthy of everlasting life. Why? Because they had made the decision to reject Jesus. Paul Little, he writes, God sends no one to hell. Each person sends himself. God has done all that is necessary for a person to be forgiven to be redeemed, to be cleansed, to be made fit for heaven. All that remains is for us to receive this gift. You know, you, you hear it often from the skeptic. How can an all-loving God send someone to hell for eternity? But the misconception is that God is sending the person to hell for eternity. In this instance, they were judging themselves unworthy of everlasting life. God does everything to woo a man to himself, to woo a person to himself, to he demonstrated his love. For God so loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes might have everlasting life. God wills for all men to come into a saving faith. But here's the thing, if you reject God, if you reject Jesus over this course of life, when you die, would it really be heaven for then God to force you to spend eternity with him? It's like, I know that you really didn't want anything to do with me over those 70 plus years, but now that you're in the afterlife, <laughs> you're gonna spend eternity with me. Now that would be hell. You see, God is a gentleman and he allows us to make decisions. C.S. Lewis, he said something that's very profound. He said, the door of hell is locked from the inside. There are only two kinds of people in this end, those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. The Bible says to those who seek, find. And to those who knock, it will be opened. And in regards to hell being an affront to God's love, I think Ravi Zacharias says it best. He says, God is just and he must punish sin, but he is also love. And his love cannot force others to love him. Love cannot work coercively, but only persuasively. Forced love is a contradiction in terms. Hence, God's love demands that there be a hell where a person who does not wish to love him can experience the great divorce when God says to them, and then he quotes from Lewis, thy will be done. You reject it. And by doing it, you've judged yourself unworthy. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. Now, they're not glad that the, the, the Jews are going to hell. That's not why they were glad. They're glad that the gospel has been demonstrated to them. And we're told that they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. You know, Paul shows incredible wisdom by not focusing on the hardened hearts in this community. Like since the Jews that were living in Antioch were resisting the gospel and fruit was being yielded in these Hellenistic communities, the Gentiles, they become the focus of Paul's evangelism, which kind of gives me a little bit of application I'd like to share along this lines. You're called to be a witness. Now that to be a witness is, is to live a life as a witness. It's not necessarily what all you do, it's who you are that communicates a truth to the world. You're either light or you're salt. You don't have to force those things to come out. It's a natural byproduct of a relationship with Jesus. But as you're in the world, sharing your faith, telling people the good news of the gospel, you're gonna have people reject it. And in the face of rejection, don't worry about it. As a matter of fact, in the face of rejection, that friend that just doesn't wanna listen to you, don't hammer them over the head with the Bible, just, okay, and move on to someone that'll hear. Like, it's that simple. Here, Paul, he goes to the synagogue. He preaches to Jew, and he preaches to Gentiles. The Jews reject it, but the Gentiles accept it. So Paul's not banging his head up against the wall trying to reach these rejecting Jews. He says, you judged yourself unworthy. Yo, Gentiles, what's up? Let's roll. I mean, that's kind of his perspective here. Now, there's a, a sentence, a phrase that, that has to be addressed in this particular passage. We're told, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. <laughs> this is kind of a loaded phrase. It's a loaded sentence. Now, to understand this particular verse, I'm going to pose a question I want you to consider. Because this will help you kind of wrap your brain around complex nature of what Luke is writing. So here's the question. Were these Gentiles appointed to eternal life because they believe the word of the Lord? Or did these Gentiles believe the word of the Lord because they had been appointed to eternal life? Huh? Like, 
head goes, well, I don't know. Now, understand up front, I'm a firm believer in the doctrine of predestination. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, make it a topic that you can't escape. We're told, for whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Why do I believe in the doctrine of predestination? (laughs) Because the Bible teaches it. And yet, while predestination is an inescapable reality of Scripture, so too is the fundamental existence of man's responsibility. (laughs) What has Paul just finished saying? He's just finished telling these Jews, what? You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. How? By the decision that you're making. Beyond this, like the entire purpose of the sermon we looked at last week, Paul's first sermon, it was all aimed at doing what? Convincing them, pleading with his audience to to make a decision to choose to follow Jesus. Paul even acknowledges the reality that many would choose not to reject Jesus. So predestination, it's in scripture, but so too is the reality of of human choice. You can't divorce this verse from the context of the entire chapter. John 1, verses 11 and 12, we're told that Jesus came to his own and his own did not, what? Receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Revelation 3.20, before I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. It doesn't say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If I've predestined that door to open, then you're good. If I've predestined it to stay shut, well, bummer. Like, (laughs) that's not how it's phrased. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you what? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. It doesn't say, if you're so lucky that God, as the grand ventriloquist, moves your mouth to utter the words that you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the what? The heart. One believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. 1 Timothy three verses, uh, 2, verses 3 and 4. For it is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires what? All men. To be saved. That word all in the Greek is a fascinating word literally means all, like everyone, all, all men to come into the knowledge of the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that all men do, but God's desire is for them to. So let's get back to the question, right? Were these Gentiles appointed to eternal life because they believed the word of the Lord? Or did these Gentiles believe the word of the Lord because they had been appointed to eternal life? The answer, yes. Yes, that's not a cop-out. That's just what scripture has to say. It presents both. Let me try to simplify it. Like getting outside of the, the, the weeds of doctrine and theology, let's just like try to bring it home for a moment. How can you know, if you're sitting there this morning and you're like, how do I know that I've been appointed to eternal life? It's real easy. Make the decision to believe the word of God and follow Jesus. Because if you do that, guess what? 
You've been appointed to eternal life. You're good to go. And how will you know if you weren't appointed to eternal life? Uh, just continue to reject Jesus and die and stand in judgment. And then you're like, snap. <laughs> it's up to you. If you want to be appointed, make a decision to follow Jesus. If you're appointed, you've made a decision to follow Jesus. It's, it's good. Well, we're told, verse 49, that the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. This being the region of Galatia. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them. And they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I love this, this, this line. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all of the region. I mean, how in the world does that happen? I mean, it's just Paul and Barnabas. But what's being presented here is something that, that couldn't really be accomplished by just Paul and Barnabas. Like, this speaks to something that's happening as a result of what they initiated. How is the word of God spreading throughout all of the region? Well, it's a simple word, contagion. You see, Paul and Barnabas were making disciples who were so filled with the Spirit and excited about what Jesus was doing in their lives that they went out and did what? Made other disciples who were so excited about the good news of Jesus and what Jesus had done that they went out and did what? Made disciples who were so excited about what Jesus was doing in their life that they went out and made more disciples who, you get the point. It was spreading. It was kind of like Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch, preach the gospel, and boom, just, they, they just let it run. It was spreading all over the region. But the Jews raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, which should not come as a surprise. You know, it's the truth that whenever a work of God is making an impact, that work will find itself opposed by the enemy? I mean, that's just a reality, a simple reality. You know, it's been correctly stated that Satan only attacks those in whom he's threatened by, which is kind of dangerous because if you aren't finding yourself opposed by the enemy, then you have to ask yourself the question, am I doing anything that threatens him? Like, is there a work of God happening in my life? Because he would oppose it otherwise. Like, understand, sometimes persecution and opposition is the greatest evidence you're right where God has you, doing exactly what God wants you to do, that you're right in his will was the case with Paul and Barnabas. They're not being opposed because they were doing something wrong. Because they were doing all the things right is why they were being opposed. But notice what their reaction was in the face of this persecution. We're told that they shook off the dust from their feet against them, these unbelieving Jews, and they came to Iconium. You see, in a very real and profound sense, these two men responded to opposition by having a pity party. God, we're just doing all these things for you, and man, it's just we just can't catch a break. 
No. Opposition, and they just kept on keeping on. Like they just remained faithful. They allowed themselves not to be deterred. It's so easy we give up, don't we? And yet if God has called you and you're at peace with that calling, remain faithful. The Bible talks a lot about endurance, right? A race. You can't run a race if you're easily deterred. It's why I'm not a good runner. Like I get deterred with like, oh, I gotta go find my tennis shoes. <laughs> like at that point, it's like, it's not, it's not going, thank you, Rob, appreciate it. It's not going and running that's the deterrent. It's finding my shoes and having to lace them up. Like that's enough of a deterrent. for Like if you're easily deterred, like I got my shoes on, but I gotta now go downstairs to go run. Oh, I'm done. I just can't do it. Too much opposition. I'm easily deterred when it comes to running. But in a spiritual way, in a spiritual life, do you endure? Because if you're willing to throw in the towel at the first time you have to kind of suck it up and push, you're in the wrong thing. I I like the fact that they shook off the dust. This was a a a rabbinical practice of the Jews during this time period. As a matter of fact, according to the Talmud, the Mishnah, other extra-biblical writing, when a rabbi would have to leave the promised land of Israel into Gentile territory, those unbelieving heathens, when they would come back into the land, they would literally, like, knock the dust off their feet because they didn't want to bring unbelieving Gentile dust into Israel, which is kind of silly. And I kind of see Paul doing this in a very silly kind of way to make a very profound point where he's like, you do this with unbelieving Gentiles. We're going to knock the dust off our feet as a testimony against you because you're also unbelieving. I kind of see a lot of sarcasm in this and I kind of love that, like that Paul also has this spiritual gift of, of sarcasm. It should be noted in Mark 6 that Jesus told his disciples to do this thing. He says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you. When you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now let's get to the motion of the text because now Paul and Barnabas, they're moving on. They leave Antioch. And as our map will illustrate here, they're going to travel some 50 miles southeast to the city of Iconium. So That's where they happened to be. And we're told, verse 1 of chapter 14, that it happened that while they were in Iconium, that they went together, Paul, Barnabas, to the synagogue of the Jews. This was their custom. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. I like this about Paul. Because if you just had this experience in Antioch, I kind of like, for me, the last place I would go would be back to the synagogue of the Jews. And yet he goes to the next town and he goes right back into the lion's den. Now, note, there's no scriptural evidence that Paul ever really had a success at evangelizing the Hebrew. He preached to the Jews in Damascus soon after his conversion. 
they tried to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem to preach the gospel to the Jews. They also tried to kill him, and he's banished for 10 years. He comes to Antioch and finds some success because he's preaching now not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. And now he goes out into just purely Gentile areas. Everywhere he goes, Jews rejecting, but Gentiles responding. You would think Paul would just kind of get the clue. Lots of success with the Gentiles, not so much with the Jews. I'm going to spend all my time with the Gentiles. But he doesn't. That's his calling. That's what he does. But you know, Paul had a heart. He had a heart for the Jew. As a matter of fact, in Romans 9, he would say this concerning this topic. He says, I tell you the truth, in Christ, I'm not lying, which, which I appreciate from someone writing scripture. Thank you for that, Paul. You're going to tell me the truth. You're not going to lie to me. I appreciate that. But he says, my conscience, bearing with me as witness in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. For who? For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises of whom our fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all and eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. He, he's, he's saying literally, like, I, I wish that you Jewish brethren would listen to the point that I, I would sacrifice myself that I would be accursed, damned, sent to hell if you would just believe. There's a few lines I'm not gonna cross in my love for you. And that's one of them, just letting you know. Like, I'm kind of like Paul. Like, if you wanna reject it, you can judge yourself worthy. I love you, but I also love Jesus and I'd like to spend eternity with him. But, but you get Paul's heart, right? And so here in Iconium, where does he go? It's kind of like he knows it's not going to end well, but he goes there anyway. And we're told that he entered the synagogue and so spoke. This phrase indicates that it was the way Paul spoke that was just as, as convincing as the content of what he was speaking. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul will write, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It was not just the content, but it was the way that he presented the content. That Paul was not a flashy man. And that he didn't wow the crowd he just gave truth. And the result, a great multitude of both the Jews and the Greeks, they believed. And in response to the initial fruits of their ministry, we're told in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews, there they are again, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Unbelieving Jews. This word unbelieving, it means a refusal to be persuaded. Like literally, it can mean that they just refuse to believe. Like even as Paul is speaking, they might in their own mind be convinced, but they're still gonna reject it. They're still gonna resist it. And you might say, well, why would a person do that? Well, why did you? 
Like we've all had that moment, a, a point in life where we knew the truth, but we were still resisting it for various reasons. What it would do to our friends, how it would change our lives, the fact that we might like sin. These, they're unbelieving. They're rejecting what they know to be true. And as a result, they stirred up the Gentiles. They whip them into a fury by poisoning their minds against Paul and Barnabas. You know, it's a reality that if a person rejects the message, they're going to reject the messenger. And yet, look at Paul and Barnabas' reaction. Verse 3, therefore, therefore, as a result of this rejection, this smear campaign, they stayed there in Iconium a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's interesting. In Antioch, persecution, opposition, what does Paul and Barnabas do? They leave. They're they're expelled from the region. And they don't resist it. They don't tarry. They move on. Yet now, they're in Iconium. Persecution arises. And what do they do? They hunker down. They stay. They're not going to be deterred. Now, Now, why the difference? Well, at the end of Acts 13, you'll notice that the opposition in Antioch was targeted to whom? to Paul and Barnabas specifically. So there's a church already there. There are other believers, a great multitude, the word of God spreading. The focus of the opposition was Paul and Barnabas, but not necessarily on this new church. So they're kind of like, we'll go ahead and leave because that'll bring peace to the church. However, now that they're in Iconium, opposition is not just geared at Paul and Barnabas, but we're told very specifically that it was aimed at whom? The brethren. Not just Paul and Barnabas, but this whole group of disciples, which is why they determined to stay. Like it would seem that Paul and Barnabas recognized the importance, like the need to stay as long and iconium as possible for the benefit of whom, Paul and Barnabas? No, for these young Christians. You know, it's one thing to encourage a person to endure persecution, but it's an entirely different thing when you intentionally choose to endure that persecution alongside of that individual. It's not like, oh, persecution, guys, you should endure it. See ya, we're out. No, they had to stay. They wanted to teach them how to endure. Paul and Barnabas recognizing this this important opportunity to teach endurance. Now, don't miss the significance of of what Luke is communicating when he writes that Paul, look at it again. Paul was doing what? He was speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Let's unpack that for a second. Who was bearing witness and granting signs? Was it Paul? No. According to the context, it's Jesus. That Jesus is bearing witness and granting signs. And what was Jesus bearing witness to? The word of his law. He was bearing witness to the word of his grace, of his grace. And how was Jesus bearing witness? Literally affirming this message of grace, where we're told that Jesus granted, allowed, permitted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, this, 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 phrase, this phrase, signs and wonders, don't let it confuse you. A sign, what's a sign? 
Don't overcomplicate it. Just think real sim- simplistic. A sign is just something that guides a person to the proper destination, right? Like if you're wanting to get to Atlanta, follow the signs. The signs exist to get you to where you want to go. So we should ask, what were the signs there to lead them to? Or what was the destination of the sign? It was wonder. Don't overcomplicate it. Wonder. Like think of it like this. A sign was literally an occurrence that should cause the people to wonder. Huh? To start thinking in and of themselves. Well, that doesn't happen every day. Like basically the signs were permitted to get them to think in such a way that it pointed them to the right destination. The destination being Jesus. I hope you understand that God is never scared of a thinker. That God is never scared of a question. That God acts to create wonder so that we'll find answers. Now note that the message of his grace, that's what was so controversial, wasn't it? In 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24, Paul explains that while the Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. <laughs> we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, a stumbling block. To the Greek, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews, part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they, Paul and Barnabas, becoming aware of it, decide it's now time to leave. (laughs) So they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region where they preached the gospel there as well. Now before we unpack the text, there's another topic of controversy that exists in this passage, and I think this, this topic of controversy only exists because of some fundamental misunderstandings. Luke tells us, look at it again, the city was divided, we get that, and, and how was it divided? There was part siding with whom? The Jews, and there were part siding with whom? The apostles. Wait a second, the apostles? The, the apostles, which apostles? Like at which point in this whole proceeding did Peter, James, and John and the other 12 come up here to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby? Who are these apostles? Now, the answer, a couple verses later, we're told, but when apostles, Barnabas and Paul heard this. Huh? Apostles, Barnabas and Paul? But wait a second. I mean, I, I was here through this series and I don't recall either of them being apostles. So when did they become apostles? Because we're kind of being introduced to this kind of willy-nilly, and that's kind of confusing and should for a moment be addressed. Let's start with just a a definition. This word apostle. In the Greek, it's apostolos, which literally refers to one that's sent forth with orders or someone sent with a specific commission. That's what the word means. Now, the word is interesting because it denotes the authorization of the individual to fulfill a particular function with the emphasis of the one being on the individual sending, not on the one who sent, which means that when it comes to an apostle, there's three things you should keep in mind. First, an apostle 
must be sent by someone else. You don't send yourself as an apostle, by definition. If you run into anyone that calls themselves an apostle, run the other way, because they're not an apostle. Like no one would call themselves an apostle. You can't commission yourself, ordain yourself. An apostle is someone sent by someone else. Secondly, an apostle has to have a particular mission, by definition. And thirdly, an apostle must be sent by the person sending with sufficient power by the person sending to accomplish the particular mission. With this in mind, the role of an apostle, it's defined by the sender, not the sendee, the sender, and it's defined by the mission. And in Scripture, we find apostles connected to three different senders with three different missions. First, God the Father commissioned the apostle. One apostle. His name was Jesus. Commissioned that apostle and gave him a specific task. Of what? Of redeeming mankind from their sin. He's the only apostle that can do that. Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So God the Father sent Jesus with the mission of saving the world, the apostle. Secondly, Jesus commissioned 12 apostles and he gave them the task of laying the foundation of the church. Revelation 21 verse 14 denotes that these men were unique. We're told now the wall of the city, speaking of heaven, the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of whom? The 12 apostles of whom? Of the Lamb, that being Jesus. Now we know that these apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot. That's 11. Now who replaced Judas? That's the topic of much debate. Some believe that it's Matthias, who's appointed by the, 12, by the 11 remaining apostles in Acts 1, but the problem with his apostleship is that he was appointed by whom? The other apostles, and not by whom? By Jesus. Paul claims to have been appointed by Jesus, which means that he's likely the 12th apostle. Galatians 1.1, he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul's clear, yeah, I'm an apostle. Because who commissioned me? Jesus. And then he says in, in Romans eleven thirteen 13, that he was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And when might he have been commissioned by Jesus? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says, last of all, Jesus was seen by me also as one, as one born out of due time. So God had an apostle, Jesus, sent to save the world. Jesus had apostles, the 12, to lay the foundations of the church, Paul being the 12th, in my opinion. But thirdly, while there is no doubt that the original 12 served a unique function in laying the foundation of the church, they were sent by Jesus, Scripture does present the reality that the Holy Spirit commissions apostles. And it's very likely that they're equipped for the purposes of today. Think of it like this. Aside from the original 12, the Greek word apostle is used in Scripture. Acts 14, verse 14, for Barnabas. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dads, you figure it out. Galatians 1, verse 19. Thank you, my wife giggled at that joke. 
Titus is called an apostle, 2 Corinthians 8.23. Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.25. Andronicus in Junia, Romans 16.7, also called apostles. So wait a second. There does exist apostles aside from the 12. Beyond this, you have to think their apostles exist. But if the role of apostle ended like some think with the original 12, then why was their other apostles accepted by the first century church? And then why were those in the first century church then cautioned concerning false apostles? Think about it. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. If there are only 12 apostles, then why would Paul say, for such are false apostles? Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Be, be weary of them. And Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your labors, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who what? Say they are apostles and have not, and are not, but have found them liars. So if they're not apostles, then why are we exhorted to be cautious concerning apostles? And finally, if there were only 12 men ever qualified to be an apostle, then why is the role of apostle mentioned as a gift of the Spirit designed for the edification of the church? Two passages. You got to look at it. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 31 we're told, now you are the body of Christ, members individually. And God has appointed these, God being the Holy Spirit, these in the church. First, <clears throat> apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations. He goes on. Ephesians 4, 11, and 13. And he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what purpose? The equipping of the saints and for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we have all come to the unity of the faith, which we haven't all come to, which means that these things are still to be active today in a healthy church. So what's an apostle in regards to the Holy Spirit? I'm convinced that an apostle, the role of apostle in the present day church is actually synonymous with a missionary. That a missionary and an apostle are basically the same thing. The word apostle, as we mentioned, apostolos, it's a compound word. Stello, meaning sent, and apo, meaning forth. The literal translation of apostolos into English should be emissary, which we get from the Latin. Mido, meaning to send, and ex, meaning from. An emissary is a person who's sent on a specific mission, which is where we actually get the word missionary. Not in Scripture, by the way. You're not going to find missionary in Scripture. So where are the missionaries? They're first apostles or missionaries. You see, don't forget how the entire, quote, missionary journey began. Paul and Barnabas were, according to Acts 13, verse 4, sent out by whom? The Holy Spirit. You see, in this very instance, Paul and Barnabas are apostles, are missionaries sent forth by the Holy Spirit into these various cities for the specific purpose of preaching the gospel and planting churches. This means an apostle of the Holy Spirit, as an apostle of the Holy Spirit, it was the job of Paul and Barnabas to plant the churches, establish the churches on solid doctrine while raising up qualified leaders who would care for the specific needs of the church moving forward. Most time, apostles and you know this about missionaries? They go, they plant, they get it started, they set it up on doctrine, they get leaders, and then they leave. To do what? To do it again. Because that's their gift. They like doing this. Paul definitely fits the profile. But there are other instances where someone's called to a community. They're sent into the community by the Holy Spirit's leading to plant a church on solid doctrine. 
And they happen to stay, to teach, to use other gifts. Either way, we're told here that the city was divided. And we're going to close with this thought. The city was divided. There's a, a, a move within America that kicks back, resists, is somewhat turned off to division. Like we have enough division, don't we? Democrats and Republicans, division of race, division of social economic status. We have a lot of things that divide us in this country, right? And we want unity, a unifier. In some regards, it's how President Obama was elected to begin with because he made those promises. And we, we kind of don't like the idea of things that would cause disunity or division. But here's a reality we can't escape. The gospel of Jesus Christ divides. It doesn't unify. It divides. By its nature, it divides. It separates truth from the lie. You know, light is not a great unifier. Instead, by, by its very nature, light divides. It's not real good pals with darkness. Where there's light, there's not darkness. Light drives out the darkness and darkness thrives in the absence of light. The two in and of themselves, where there's light, there's a division with darkness. But Jesus is the light of the world. And that light has been placed inside of us. Now, I'm not saying we go out with the specific intention of creating chaos. But everywhere Paul went, there was chaos because the gospel of Jesus will divide between those who accept it and those who reject it. Some of you have friends that are rejecting the message of Jesus and you're trying to live the message of Jesus. Please understand, your very position in Christ will divide. Now that doesn't mean you don't love that person or don't care about that person, but please realize the nature of what's inside of you. Light and darkness are at odds. Paul says in, in Corinthians, for what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We're gonna divide and we're gonna be opposed. You should brace yourself for that. You're not the great unifier, nor is Jesus. That's a truth. Jesus is the great divider. He divided this city of Iconium. He divided Antioch. He divided the Roman world. He divides people today. At the end, he will divide humanity between the redeemed and the lost between the righteous and the wicked. Well, that's a heavy thought. Lots that we discussed, but we'll just leave it there. We'll pick it up next Sunday. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would bless your word.